In other words, there is really, for the most part, nobody who disputes the historical facts that are recorded in Daniel chapter 11. So whether you're a conservative Bible student or a liberal Bible student, everybody pretty much understands that Daniel chapter 11 uh, is conveys very precisely, very accurately, the time uh, or the rise of the Grecian Empire to the end of the Grecian Empire. So it conveys a message that talks about the very end of the Persian Empire, the beginning of the Grecian Empire, and takes us well into the reign of Greece. Nobody really disputes that. In fact, it's so historically accurate that you really have to kind of go off the rails to see it as anything but an accurate historical portrayal of those times. Here's where the dispute arises. The question arises is when was this written? You see, there will be those who will say, because it is so unbelievably accurate, there is no possible way that it could have been written before the events. So it must have been written after the events. So Daniel, or at least the Daniel of the 5th century B.C., could not have written this. Somebody else, maybe by the name of Daniel, must have written it in the 2nd century B.C., somewhere around 100, 150 B.C., because he had... To have that precise of knowledge, he must have already seen the events occur. He must have lived through the events, or known somebody who lived through the events. The other side, my side, the right side, um, (laughs) by the way, not not that I'm biased or anything, but... The right side says, no, actually Daniel, who lived in the 5th century B.C., during the time of... um, the Babylonian Empire and on into the Persian Empire, that Daniel wrote these things. See, Daniel had had a revelation from God. God revealed to him precisely what was going to happen in the years ahead. Now, the problem then, or the issue then is we... In order to hold that view, you must understand that there is a God in heaven who exists outside of history, who understands what's going to happen in the future, that God understands what's going to happen in the times ahead. And the reason that God understands what's going to happen in the times ahead is not simply because he forecasts the future, but he is the God of the future, that he has already created that future. And so that God can reveal to somebody what's going to happen in the days to come. This is going to be crucial for us when we get uh, later on in the message today and we we look at what's going to happen in chapter 12. Because if you hold to a limited God who does not hold the future, then you are going to have real, real problems when we get to chapter 12. Because if, if you do not believe and hold to the fact that God actually has created the future and established the future. You have a weak and powerless God. You have a God who cannot deliver. And the book of Daniel, we've talked about two themes in the book of Daniel. One of the first themes we've talked about in the book of Daniel is this. 
How does a person live faithfully to God in an unbelieving culture? And this is so relevant to us today, isn't it? How do you and I? Daniel lived in a culture where service and faithfulness to the God of heaven and earth was seen as something a little bit different. Daniel seemed to be out of touch. He had strange dietary rules and he, he believed in only one God and he, this was the God of all the universe. And Daniel was kind of, the odd, kind of an odd duck, if you will. You can see why Daniel is such a relevant book for us to understand today because we are living in an increasingly God-denying culture. And perhaps let me be more specific, a God of the Bible-denying culture. And our, our ethics and our morals and our mores and our, and our values are increasingly at odds or seem odd to a world that is moving away or has moved away from the idea that there is a God in heaven who has created heaven and earth and has created you and I in his image. And he has called us to live for him. So, Daniel, the first thing in Daniel is how does a person like us, like Daniel, live faithfully to the God who has created us? How do we do that? When everything around us is pushing us away from that belief. How do we do that? That's kind of one of the big themes in the book of Daniel. The second theme that we've been studying is much more basic. The second theme we've been studying in Daniel is is God worth serving? <laughs> I mean, if we're going to live for a God who, um, and we're going to try to live faithfully for a God who kind of puts us at odds with culture, is this God worth serving? Maybe even more basic than that. Is there, a tr- is there truly a God uh, who is the ruler of heaven and earth? Let's face it, many of our friends and neighbors who might believe a little different from us might say they believe in God, but perhaps he's a distant God, he's a, he's a God of their own choosing, of their own making, he looks a lot like us. So we have to ask ourselves, is this the true God? Because quite honestly, if our God is so weak that he doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow, I would ask you, is he even worth serving? Is he worth living for if he is so weak and so powerless and so finite that he has no idea what's going to happen tomorrow? I have to ask the question then, is that a God worth living for? Maybe even more importantly, is that a God worth dying for? So those two themes, how do we live faithfully to God in this increasingly unbelieving culture? And second, is the God of the Bible, is there a true God, a God that is worth serving? So let me give you a quick overview of where we've been in Daniel. And one of the themes of Daniel chapter 1 through 6, or one of the main things we see in Daniel chapter 1 through 6, is that we see that Daniel's God is a God who delivers him and his friends from all their distress. That's a great God. So when they are going to be killed um, in the fiery furnace, God delivers them. When they are going to be, when they are cast into the den of lions, God delivers them. 
We see a God delivering his people. And everybody says amen to a God who delivers us out of evil. But in chapter 7 through 12, we see something completely different. We see a God who doesn't deliver. We do not. We see a God who does not deliver from the sword. I should say. We see a God who does not deliver from the fiery furnace and from the the lion's den. We see a God who does not deliver from the oppression and the persecution of the human of human wickedness. So now we have to ask. See, it's easy to say, "Oh yeah, the God of Daniel one through six is worth serving." Amen. He delivers me out of the lion's den. But is the God of God of Daniel chapter seven through twelve? Will you serve Him when the sword comes down and there is no escape? For that, you better have a very worthy God. So as we enter into chapter 11, I should note that actually chapters 10 through 12 are a single unit and they involve a vision that Daniel has. And chapter 10 introduces that vision. Chapter 11 is the vision. And you'll have to come back next week to find out what chapter 12 is about. And we should note that at the very heart of the vision is the concept of wisdom, for we see that term over and over again in this book. So here's what I'm going to do. Chapter 11, uh, we're going to look at chapter 11, beginning with verse 2, and go through Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. And I'm not going to read the entirety of that text. It's very involved. You have all, I asked you to read the book of Daniel before we started it, so I know that you all did that. But I am going to go through it in, in various places and, and, and pull out some of the, um, the passages of text that will be relevant to uh, our talk today. So, Daniel chapter, let me just go ahead and I'm going to read Daniel chapter 2. I'll go through verse Verse 4. And we should note also that as we, just by introduction of Daniel chapter 11, see, we've got to set the stage so we all know where we're going, because this is not an isolated passage of text. It fits in with actually the whole book of Daniel. And what we're going to see in Daniel chapter 11 is actually parallel to what we've already read in Daniel chapter 8. You'll recall in Daniel chapter 8, we already saw the, great, the, the Grecian Empire. All right. And we saw the rise of Greece as a world power. And then we saw something very interesting. We saw what was called a little horn. This was a vision that Daniel had. And he saw the rise of this beast that was identified as the empire of Greece. And that out of this beast, this vision that he saw, there arose a little horn. And this little horn was boastful and proud and arrogant and eventually was cut off. And so the things we actually saw in Daniel chapter 8 are going to be paralleled. We're going to see the same thing in Daniel chapter 11. Only Daniel chapter 11 is going to give us much greater detail. So Daniel chapter 11 is going to kind of be the high depth version of Daniel chapter 8. So Daniel chapter 8 is the analog version, okay? And Daniel chapter 11 is the high depth version. We're going to see detail that was unavailable to us in the analog version. So 
that's kind of where we're going. So you should understand that um, actually Daniel chapter 2, the, 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 the vision of the statue, um, we saw the Grecian Empire. Daniel chapter 8, we see even more detail on the, the Grecian Empire. And in Daniel chapter 11, we're going to see it in incredible high death detail. And so what we're going to be looking at is we're going to be looking at this vision. The vision is going to cover the time from uh, where Daniel is in the present all the way to the empire of Greece and then perhaps even beyond the empire of Greece. We'll have to determine whether this goes beyond the Grecian empire or not. It's a very detailed history. So let's look. Uh, let's go ahead and join me as I read in Daniel chapter 2 verses 2 through 4. This is an angel speaking um, to Daniel and he says, And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. All right. So Daniel, this actually, this particular passage text is actually occurring according to Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. It's actually occurring in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And the vision says this, three, I'm sorry, three, four more kings are going to come. So after the, um, the reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, there's going to be four more kings. And that's actually what we see in history. There were four more kings in Persian history. There were actually a few more, but they ran for like a day and got killed. Um, so being a king was tough business. But we see four more Persian kings arise, and the last of them is known as Xerxes. Now Xerxes was known for his great wealth. Wait a second, it says that. Wow, imagine that. Um, and he shall be richer than all of them, and that describes Xerxes perfectly. All right, He was known for his great wealth, and then... Um, Xerxes went and stirred up the Grecian forces. I mean, he attacked Greece um, in his uh, battle at Salamis, and he was utterly defeated and humiliated, even though he had a much greater force than the Grecian army. He went up against them and uh, basically got mad and stirred them all up, and all of a sudden Greece is like, okay, we're not putting up with this any longer. Wow, I wonder if Daniel said anything about that. Oh, look at that. Then a mighty king shall arise, um, and he shall be far riches. He shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. And then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he will. And as, wow, that's exactly what happened. After all this, a guy by the name, you probably heard of him, Alex. His name was Alex. So, yeah, he's called, I don't know if he called himself Alexander the Great. Hi, how you doing? I'm Alex the Great. Um, we call him Alexander the Great, and, and he is perhaps one of the, the greatest known military geniuses um, of, of history. And this tells us exactly about that this mighty king shall arise. He will rule with great dominion. He will do as he wills. Now listen to this. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken. Alexander, the interesting thing about Alexander the Great is how brief his empire was. I mean, how brief he actually ruled and reigned. The Grecian Empire went on for a while. But 
Alex was a very young man when he died. It, basically, as soon as he pretty much conquered as much as he could conquer, in fact, he wept. He said, gosh, there's nothing else to conquer. I've got nothing else to do. And then he died. And here's the thing. Usually when a king like that would die, um, his sons would take over. But his sons didn't take over. They were killed. And his kingdom was divided into four parts. Wow. I wonder if the Bible says anything about that. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds, but not to his posterity. Not to his kids, but it'll be divided four ways into the four winds of heaven. And not according to the authority which he ruled for his kingdom shall be plucked up and given to others besides thee. So here's what's going on. There's going to be these four Persian kings. They're going to come up. The last of them is going to be, be richer than all the others. He's going to stir up Greece. Greece, out of Greece is going to arise one Alexander the Great. He's going to conquer and then he's going to die. And the Grecian Empire will be divided into four kingdoms. That's what happened in history. That's what happened in Daniel. You can see why people who do not believe in a supernatural God are going, well, this had to have been written after the fact. But those of us who hold that God is a God of heaven go out. This is amazing. Our God is calling forth things that have not happened as though they already are. We are not surprised by that. So this talks about the rise and fall of Alexander the Great. And then when we get to chapter or verse 5 and really kind of through verse 20, I'm not going to read all of the details here, but let me just say this. It talks about the king of the north and the king of the south. All right. And so remember that the kingdom of Alexander the Great got divided into four kingdoms. And I'm not going to talk, we're going to, the Bible's really only concerned with two of them. The king of the south is called the Ptolemaic Empire, and the king of the north, this yellow area, is the Seleucus Empire. And um, I, before we talk about that, first of all, note this. Pretty much this whole chapter has to deal with these two empires. These two kings, which is interesting because if you were to read a world history book, the world history book would spend very little time talking about these two kings and a whole lot of time talking about Alexander the Great. Because from a world history perspective, Alexander the Great is the dominant figure. But from a redemptive historical perspective, from God's perspective, Alexander the Great is a nobody. Here's why we're interested in these two groups, these two kingdoms. Because you'll notice between the north and the south, there's this little tiny sliver of land known as Israel. And right in between these two opposing forces are the people of God. And you have to remember that the Bible is historical, but it doesn't, it's very selective in its history. It's interested in redemptive history, not in world history. So the Bible from beginning to end is about how God, who acts in history to bring about his redemption. And so from the very beginning, we hear about God and man who sins against God, and then God chooses of people. He raises up Abraham. Out of Abraham, out of nothing, he creates a people who became the Hebrews, the Jews, and from the Jews went into exile over here into Babylon, got returned, and then out of the Jewish people came a Messiah, and from Messiah came salvation to the whole world. This is what God is interested in. 
This is what the Bible is focused on. It is focused on redemptive history. And that's why God is interested in these two kingdoms. These guys over here, Cassander and uh, what's his name? They're, and Alex, we don't care about them. Not that they're unimportant. It's just in regards to redemptive history. Um, this is where God is going. Now, between these two kingdoms, you should note that I don't know how else to put this, but any of you who want to write an interesting novel or create a soap opera for television, you should read this. Because these guys are... This is just a mess. This is some of the most dysfunctional group of people you can imagine. In fact, you can't make this stuff up. The, the conflict, conflict between the Ptolemaic Empire and the Seleucid Empire in the north is, is amazing. And so what you're going to see, and you'll see this in verses 5 through 20, you'll read it if you get any world history book, it'll talk about it. But basically there are wars and alliances and betrayals and marriages and murders and even more than that. It's crazy. So eventually what you're going to end up seeing as you read these passages of text, you're going to see that there's a treaty between these two kingdoms. And then the the first treaty required Ptolemy um, down in the south um, to... uh, so Ptolemy down in the south forms a treaty with Seleucus in the north and what happens is Ptolemy has to marry the daughter of Seleucus her name was Bernice so it's like that's going to ratify because you remember a lot of marriages in, in earlier days they, they weren't always for love but they were, um, they were treaties alright and so they get together and so Ptolemy marries Bernice the problem is or I'm sorry a guy by the name of Antiochus um, marries Bernice and, but here's the problem Antiochus was already married <laughs> so um, he's married to a woman named Laodice so anyways he leaves her and he marries Bernice Laodice is a woman scorned and she will have none of it and so just to put the story briefly um Laodice kills Antiochus, kills Bernice, and kills their son because the son was going to be the heir of the kingdom. That's how the treaty worked. You guys get together, have a son, they'll be our, that, that, that'll be the king, and that's what we're going to do. Well, Laodice is, that's not going to happen. You think you can leave me and get away with it? I don't think so. So she kills them all. So all that's going on, and you can read. It's actually, it's amazing as you read the the passage text in Daniel, um, how that actually goes on. And in verse verse 5, Then the king of the south shall become strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he, and he shall rule, and and his authority shall be great authority. And after some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. So it just talks about this intrigue and all of this murder going on. All of this, all of this is designed to bring us 
to bring us to a very specific individual from the Grecian Empire, from the north, from the northern kingdom. The Bible refers to this individual as a despicable person. And this despicable person we know as the individual named Antiochus for Epiphanes. And he is the little horn in Daniel chapter 8. And this despicable person, we discussed him in Daniel chapter 8, this despicable person comes out of this northern kingdom. He comes out of the Seleucid kingdom and he is truly a despicable person, perhaps one of the most abhorrent individuals who has ever lived on the face of the earth. He defeats the south, and once he ends up defeating that, that southern kingdom, he begins to set his heart against the people of God. So let me just pause here for just a moment, and we should ask ourselves the question, why all of the detail? If all we needed to do was get from the Persian Empire during the time of Daniel and advanced a couple hundred years to the time of this despicable person, Antiochus IV Epiphany, why all the detail? Why do we have to have all of that intricate detail? It seems unnecessary. Well, there are probably a number of answers to that, but I will answer with this one. That Yahweh is sovereign over history. This is going to be important for us. That Yahweh is sovereign over history. And that Yahweh is worth serving even when we are not delivered from guys like Antiochus for Epiphanes. See, when life is on the line and we begin to wonder, is God the true God? When the Jewish people who lived during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes began to wonder, is God worth serving or should I just submit to this wicked ruler and do what he says, we can look back to the God that is revealed in the book of Daniel and we can say that this is the God of history. This is the God who has created me. This is the God who has victory. This is the God who utterly reigns and rules and yes, he is the one who is worth living for. This will be especially important when we get into chapter 12, so keep that in mind. And so Antiochus for Epiphanes, he is the despicable person. He comes in to um, the southern kingdom. He destroys it. Once he gets victory over the southern kingdom and consolidates everything, he sets his heart against the people of God and he was a brutal murderer. Killing tens and hundreds of thousands of Jews. He is the one who came into the temple and desecrated it. Many Jewish people suffered martyrdom. Tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people died. Antiochus IV Epiphanes 
His mission was to destroy everything that pertained to the living God. And he exalted himself above all gods. He exalted himself above the gods of human... He basically exalted the gods of human achievement. I am the God of gods. I am the King of kings. And I am the Lord of lords. I rule and I reign and I do what I say. Just like the little horn in Daniel chapter 8. He spoke boastful things. And he spoke... Um, arrogant things against the God of heaven. Go back and read in Daniel chapter 8 what happens to him because he's crushed like a bug. And Titus 4 Epiphanes was crushed like a bug. But he came into the temple and he took away the Sabbath day, he took away the, um, the dietary laws, he forced people to eat pork and unclean things. He walked into the temple. Uh, he actually walked into the Holy of Holies, set up an altar of, set up a, a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies, and sacrificed a pig on the on the altar in the temple. This was known as the abomination that causes desolation. So you see, when Jesus said, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing in the holy place, we're not, not to. The people that he was talking to knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew their history. They knew exactly that this was a despicable, this was to refer to a despicable person who would come in and desecrate all that pertains to God Almighty. And so this is Antiochus 4, Epiphanes. And all that, much of chapter 11, is geared towards getting us to this despicable human being. At this point, pretty much... All Bible students are pretty much in agreement to everything that I've just said. There's very, very little disagreement as to identifying the things that I've just said. Regardless of your perception of the Bible, whether you think it is just a book of fables, or whether you think it is the very word of God, or whether you think it has errors, or it's only valuable for um, issues regarding uh, salvation, but not in regards to history and science, regardless of your views of of, of the Bible, Bible students pretty much hold to what I've just said. But in verse 36, this is where we part company. Because in verse 36, we talk about a, a king. And the question is, is this the same king? Is this talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, or is this talking about somebody else? And the reason we might think it talks about Antiochus for Epiphanes is simply because uh, the context, the, the, the flow of the chapter seems to, there seems to be no break, there seems to be no exegetical reason to configure verse 36 and following as some different king. It seems to flow very nicely that it's talking about Antiochus. The problem is, is that many of the things that this king does in verses 36 through 45 do not relate to anything we know of Antiochus. And so, many biblical interpreters have said, 
Well, there's a couple of solutions to this. On the um, non-conservative side of things, they would say, see, this is some guy writing in the first century B.C. and he just didn't, you know, he got his facts wrong. He just didn't know. Okay, well, we tossed that out. I think he's wrong. That's a wrong understanding. But on the conservative side of things, there are two possible solutions. The first one is that um, this king is actually Antiochus Epiphanes, but we just don't know enough about him historically, and perhaps these things are true, and after some archaeological and historical discoveries, maybe we'll find out that these things um, that we can't account for, maybe they actually happened. The other view, then, is that this does not refer to Antiochus Epiphanes at all. It refers to an individual who will appear in the future, and he, who, he will... Be, he will reign and rule in the spirit and in the ferocity and in the wickedness of Antiochus Epiphanes, but he is somebody who comes much later. In other words, Antiochus would be the prototype, but there will come an evil king who is, who, for whom Antiochus is the prototype, but he will come in the future. Perhaps we see uh, this in... Paul's writing in 2 Thessalonians. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Well, that sounds a lot like Antiochus, doesn't it? Paul seems to be saying that there is an individual that will come who models himself after Antiochus, who, who's a lot like that little horn. So those are our two solutions. Um, so you're probably wondering what's, what's the right one. Well, <laughs> I'm not going to be really dogmatic on, on this. I, I understand the, uh, the understanding that this is referring to Antiochus. I also understand that it could speak of some future person or system who persecutes the people of God. Here's my, here's, I'm, going to, I'm going to really firmly saddle the fence on this one. But here's how I understand we really discovered this when we were in the book of Revelation. Anti-kings come and go. Kings of kingdoms rise and fall. Antichrist, there are many antichrists. And they rise and they fall and they come and they go. And whether their name is Antiochus or Epiphanes, or whether their name is Nero or Claudius, or whether their name is Pol Pot, or whether their name is Kim Jong-il, People rise and people fall and they come and they set their heart against the God of gods because they consider themselves of the highest order and they exalt themselves above every divine thing. Kings come and kings go. Antichrists rise and antichrists fall. And until the coming of Jesus Christ, there will be antichrists. 
See, it is the natural tendency of fallen man to reject the sovereign God and to exalt themselves. That is just the natural tendency of man. And so whether you, there may be a king who is a benevolent good king, but after him one will come who is a little less good, and after him one a little less good until you have a destiny. But until the coming of Jesus Christ, there will be many antichrists, and they will look a lot like Antiochus Epiphanes. They will look a lot like Nero. They'll look a lot like Stalin. They'll look a lot like all of these wicked rulers have. They all look the same. And I think we see that really clearly in the book of Revelation. Perhaps even in the book of Revelation, and we suggested this as, as an interesting theory about the Antichrist, this, this man, this individual whose wound was healed and he comes back to life again. And many interpreters have put forth the idea that that's just evidence that anti, Antichrist comes, a guy like Antiochus Epiphanes comes and he dies and you think he's dead. He's not dead. He comes back to life and he looks like Nero. And then Nero dies, and then you think he's dead, but he's not. He comes back to life as somebody else. And he comes and he goes, and he rises and he falls. So whether this is an Antiochus Epiphanes, or whether the, this is some man of lawlessness at the end of time, I will uh, suggest to you that we live in a day, we live in a world where the heart of man is wicked and despises the rule of God. And it will reject God until it is redeemed. And now we look at chapter 12. And now regardless of who you are or your understanding of scripture, you must take a giant leap forward in time. So at some point you have to leap forward in time in the book of Daniel. You can leap forward in time at the book at Daniel 11.36 and say this is some antichrist figure at the, at the end of time just prior to the return of Christ. Or you can get to chapter 12, verse 1 and then leap forward in time. But regardless, one way or another, you have to go forward in time um, in the book of Daniel. And I want to read this because this is an amazing passage of text. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Notice that at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those, listen to this, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to or fro, and knowledge shall increase. So now we leap forward to time in time, and it says there is going to be a time unlike any other time. It is a time... Um, uh, of trouble unlike any other time and notice this but your people will be delivered but note clearly the deliverance because the deliverance is not deliverance from the sword it is not deliverance from the lion's den it's not deliverance from the fire notice this the deliverance is resurrection to new life the deliverance is resurrection to eternal life that is the deliverance So, how does God deliver His people? 
Well, sometimes he delivers them from the sword. Sometimes he delivers them from the guillotine. Sometimes he delivers them from the lion's den. And sometimes he not, does not, but he always will deliver his people through resurrection. See, if you do not believe in a God who knows history, you cannot believe in a God who raises the dead. If you have a small, powerless God of history in chapter 11, how is it then that you can turn around and say, yeah, but at the end of the days, he's going to raise me from the dead. If he doesn't know tomorrow, he can't raise you from the dead. But if you hold to a God who knows the future, i tell you this, He can raise the dead. Is God worth serving? Absolutely God is worth serving because God is the God who raises the dead. So when we are not delivered from the lion's den, when we are not delivered from the sword, when we are not delivered from cancer, when we are not delivered from terminal disease, when our loved one succumbs to their injuries, when our child dies in the womb, when we don't understand where is God, God has not left the universe because God raises the dead. He delivers His people. Always He delivers His people, some to everlasting life and some to eternal contempt. The sovereign God of history. Right now, if you are suffering and you have some terminal disease, if you are suffering through grief and through loss, if you are suffering through whatever it is you may be dealing with and you're saying, God, deliver me, I am telling you this. That the sovereign God of history will on the last day raise you up. And this mortal will put on immortality. And this weakness will put on strength. O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? This is where Daniel's going. Daniel gives us this incredible detail, not so that it will satisfy some prophetic curiosity, but to assure us that I am the God of history. And not only am I the God of history, but I'm the God of eternity. And on that last day, if you will follow me, I will raise you up. You may not be delivered from the sword. Perhaps Daniel was saved from the lion's den and he still died. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went through the fire and eventually they still died. Do they have any hope? But on the last day, I will raise them up. And so I'll conclude with this. We serve God in an unbelieving culture and in a godless land. I would pray that, at least for our nation, that we would return and humble ourselves and bow the knee and confess that God is God. But even if we don't, and a despicable ruler comes and rules over us, and one after him even more despicable, and one after that one even more despicable, to the point where the people of God are crushed under the weight of tyranny. How do we serve God under such conditions. I'll tell you this. And those who are wise shall shine like the bright... I'm sorry, this. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever. How do we live? 
We go out and we begin sharing the gospel and turning people to righteousness. And that will indicate that you are a wise person and you will shine like the stars and you will be called a child of the everlasting God and you will live and reign and rule with him forever and ever and ever. And so we serve God in an unbelieving land. So our charge, how do we serve God in this land? First of all, be steadfast. In fact, let me just go and I just got to get the quote right. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 15, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, this mortal body must put on immortality, and when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written O death death is swallowed up in victory O death where is your victory O death where is your sting the sting of death is sin the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord therefore therefore my beloved brethren be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that it That in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. How do we live faithfully in this world? We will be steadfast, immovable, even when our customs appear odd to this culture. We will turn many to righteousness and know this. Your labor is not in vain. And and on the last day, O death, where is your victory? O hell, where is your sting? This is wisdom. And finally this. So how do we live in an unbelieving land? By being steadfast and immovable. Believing the Lord. Second, is God worth serving? Well, I'll tell you this. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Antichrist come. Antiochus comes. He has a number of different faces, whatever mode he puts on this time. And kingdoms come and go, but the king of kings has an everlasting kingdom. And the king of kings is worth our everlasting devotion. Yes, he is worth serving. Absolutely. Even when the sword is coming down upon your neck, then especially he is worth serving because he will raise you up and you will be victorious and vindicated. Let's stand and let's pray.